Hi, welcome to the 43rd episode of the Deep Seed Podcast for Coaches. In this episode, I welcome um, a friend, uh, Lynn Hanna for Day, who is sharing with us about her coaching journey um, as moving from being an HR director to being a psychotherapist and then coach and then artist. Um, with a lot of uh, passion and inspiration to hear uh, her views about the difference between coaching and therapy and also how she uses art to self-coach and, and how to support herself. Um, I, I'm really uh, excited and inspired to share this journey with you. Uh, please uh, drop by Apple Podcasts, give us your impressions and also uh, connect with us on our website www.beijingmindfulnessacademy.com We would love to hear from you. Enjoy! All right, so here we are and I am so excited. We already had a, a short uh, chat uh, connecting with you, Lynn. Uh, as we mentioned, it's been quite a while uh, that we were sitting in, in the same classroom and attending a coaching program and it's been now like 18 years so and I believe that maybe we are connecting more or less the first time certainly over video conference right like over zoom <laughs> and and yeah. <laughs> yeah, beautiful. And just to give a bit of a background for those who are tuning in and, and listening to this um, recording is that uh, I actually uh, checked some of the articles you were sharing on LinkedIn profile and I, I checked your profile and I was very, very inspired to to hear about your um journey and and how you took coaching and where you took your creativity and this is what inspired me to invite you to actually be the guest um today with with the podcast and and everything so um thank you again for agreeing uh, on that uh, and uh, i just as a reference for for everybody who is listening uh, you're a coach and a mentor. You work with senior leaders. Um, you work with a le on leadership development and self-awareness. Um, can you tell a little bit more? How was all that journey? How did it uh, start? And and you know where where are? How did we end up being here? <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for um, inviting me to take part in your podcast. Uh, and yeah, 18 years, it's a long time, but I can still remember the course where we met, which was with Suzanne Skiffington on behavioural coaching. And it was the first kind of professional coach training that I had done. Um, I was also doing one on NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming, in yeah. parallel with it. And I guess that's where my kind of um, development as a coach began back in 2005. Although I was first kind of introduced to coaching in, I think, about 1993, so many years earlier. And I was part of a, an HR team 
creating a new performance management system or an appraisal system. And we introduced coaching as part of the line manager training, which feels like it was a bit ahead of its time back then. And also competencies, which were relatively new back in the early 90s. Um, so the thread was born much earlier than that Mm. course with Suzanne but as you said the majority of my career has been working in human resources um, for about 25 years as a director very much focused on change management cultural change business transformation they're all the buzzwords Uh, (laughs) But alongside that, I I then trained as a psychotherapist and I qualified in 2008. So I decided to go down that route before taking anything further with coaching. Mm -hmm. And uh, following that, I then started a master's programme in organisational change because that was the core of my work. And 10 years ago, I had a breakdown. Um, I was just trying to do too many things, holding down a big corporate job. I was a single parent. My son by then was at university. And I think a lot of things from the previous years kind of collided. A lot of people asked if it was due to work-related stress and no, the answer is no, it wasn't. Work mm. is what kept going, and it probably kept me going much longer than it should have done. Mm-hmm. But it was during my recovery from that uh, that I started using colouring books. Mm. And uh, I don't know what it's like in China, but in the UK, they became huge you know people were really into coloring books as a form of mindfulness practice and uh, just help people switch off and get into a different part of their brain Uh, and I would I'd always been interested in patterns and kaleidoscope patterns Um, so I was coloring those and it helped to alleviate the chatter in my head which was excellent, and it gave me relief from that. So as I recovered, started to feel better, I began to wonder how I could make my own geometric patterns, and I particularly wanted to learn how to create a Tibetan Buddhist mandala because I find them very beautiful. But I couldn't find anywhere. I couldn't find classes. There was nothing. It's like crickets was all I heard. So, <laughs> so I bought a book from Amazon on sacred geometry and a pair of compasses and just began playing and making stuff up. I had no idea what I was doing. And uh, I made a couple of pieces for some friends and somebody who knew me, who was who ran a hypnotherapy clinic, was holding a spring event um, with local craftspeople selling their products and she invited me to sell my arts and I said I haven't got any art 
but you're posting it on Facebook. I said, but I've only made two. So this crazy voice in my head said, just say yes. So I made some more and I sold it. And I then got invited to exhibit at another event. And kind of the whole thing, it was a series of synchronicity. Mm. A couple of years later, I then discovered a college in London called the Prince's School of Traditional Arts, which runs a master's programme, which is underpinned by geometry. And they teach across um, faiths of Buddhism or Hinduism or Islam, Celtic, um, the old old arts. And I've immersed myself in that the last six years. What I've called a paid hobby because I have sold my work around the world um, and on recovering from being unwell 10 years ago I became self-employed so I've kind of earned my living as a consultant and as an executive coach and the income I earn from that allows me to indulge my passion for art. So here I am 10 years on from that able to call myself an artist which still astonishes me right yeah it is really fascinating I mean I can hear how much passion there is it's just uh, talking about it and and the journey of of the art uh, I'm, I'm hearing some some healing that it's providing for you and just kind of like stepping from all that brainy work uh in a way that maybe working in organizations would take and, and so on. And, and just as we were chatting, I also know that you did take mindfulness programs as well and MBCT yes. and, and mindful self-compassion, which is a great addition. The, so before we kind of like go into uh, directions, there's one kind of like... Uh, curiosity for me I mean you went from being um, in HR there's a lot about connecting with people there being for people and and supporting people in organizations but then you transitioned into therapy and and then kind of like although there was coaching and, and work and then therapy and then again coaching how do you link two of those disciplines before we go into the art and and mindfulness Mm. i'm really curious about your take on on that Mm. yeah the the conversation about the difference between therapy and coaching yeah uh, is something that has been uh, raised in every other coach training that i've done um, so I, I'm a, uh, an accredited strengths coach with Gallup Consulting. Mm-hmm. I've trained with Nancy Klein in her method of time to right. think. Mm-hmm. Um, last year, I completed a psychosynthesis coach training. And right. I've also done a coach qualification with Henley Business School. So mm-hmm. I've got a kind of raft of certificates I can paper my wall with. But every single one of those trainings has brought up a question about how does coaching differ from therapy? And quite often the people in the room have never experienced therapy, let alone trained as a psychotherapist. 
So people tend to speak from a place of um, lack of knowledge. It's perception-based. But right from when I did the um, psychotherapy training, you know, I was in HR and I was a buyer of coaching services from other people. And I was really curious myself about the difference between therapy and coaching. And I'm not sure I have a simple answer. The, the one thing I'm really grateful for is that I have done that psychotherapy training because I believe it underpins my coaching in terms of the skills around listening. Mm -hmm. where the emphasis on coaching tends to be about questioning and asking powerful questions in quotation marks. I have found that some of the most powerful questions are the most simple ones, and it's the invitation for people to say more. Um, and the deep listening that uh, I came to learn through therapy and also Nancy Klein's approach, and I also think mindfulness, enables us to give deep attention to the other and to ourselves and to pay attention to what is happening in our own body. Um, and I think therapy trains us in how to listen somatically as well as through our ears. And so there's mm. a whole physical response that requires slowing down as mm. well as um, connecting to the other person um, thematically it's a very embodied thing so I think there is a kind of some overlap around the skills I think there's a lot that coaches can do that is in the same space as therapy mm. but coaching is much less interested in the unconscious processes and the mm. unconscious communication, um, where, which is where a lot of therapy actually takes place. Mm. Um, so I see that as perhaps one of the main areas of difference, but lots of people tend to summarise it, I think incorrectly, is that therapy is focused on the past and yeah. coaching is focused on the future. And I know from my own work in coaching, that sometimes if people are trying to overcome stuckness or some kind of block, mm. it does require the willingness to actually examine something more deeply. And perhaps that might mean visiting certain mm. events or beliefs that formed years ago. But that doesn't mean that you're behaving as if you were a therapist. I hope that makes mm. sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So this this element of of uh, unconscious, right? Then you mentioned also um, somatic awareness as a let's say as a practitioner. I I don't want to divide here how and what because I, what I believe is that if you have psychotherapy training and you're working as a coach, even as you're asking powerful questions, you will be aware of the body language or somatic 
process is happening inside and and as well as what is happening with the on the unconscious level you can't say that you're going to remove that from from the coaching session and just be a coach so there's this beautiful depth i i believe that happens if if this is present in a coaching session um however there are some lines that we we can also cross because as someone who is not trained for example we don't we can't really recognize maybe some patterns in behaviors or or in some um maybe uh, uh diagnostic maybe uh, uh ways where where somebody could who is trained can obviously see that maybe there is some bipolar behavior or maybe depression or or so on right or adhd and all these um, yes. kind of like common common topics so as coaches we are not really trained to see that and sometimes when being trained in psychotherapy could actually be very helpful so that we know where we are and there's a collective trauma happening in the world uh, at the moment i believe that this is really yes. really important yeah right i absolutely agree yeah yeah so um how how does that work in the concept of um leadership coaching working in organizations uh, are are leaders your let's say your experiences that you that you work with uh, how open are they to tap into unconscious uh, through coaching um and yeah I, I think it depends on um why they're there mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, right. what their their aims are uh, in terms of coaching and what perhaps their struggles may be. Um, I don't think anyone comes to coaching saying, I want to look at my unconscious traits, and neither do people do that coming into therapy. We, you know, we, we live our days believing that uh, we're conscious and <laughs> doing things from a rational point of view. But when people start talking about patterns of behaviour, uh, to me, that suggests that there is a curiosity. Um, frequently in the work I've done in organisations, um, there's, there's often some kind of issue that the person is seeking to resolve around relationship with uh, colleagues or often their boss, you know, their, their manager, don't get on with a manager, um, or it may be somebody who is in a leadership role and managing others, and they have some kind of particular issue with a member of their team or their mm. whole team. And when uh, a leader, you know, whatever their position in the organisation, that somebody who has a team, and they start saying to me, my team or these people on my team, and it's usually negative, they're not mm. doing something, they're not living up to my demands, you know, they, they, um, they bother me too much. And I immediately think I need to be working with you as the leader. Mm. Um, you know, the leaders tend to project onto their teams, and this is all an unconscious process. Mm-hmm. Um, and when 
any of us, whether we're in work or outside of work, have some kind of difficult relationship with another person. That's uh, where my therapy background comes in um, because we're looking at projection, which could be both positive or negative traits. Mm -hmm. um, we are seeing some something in another person that is actually a reflection of ourselves. And if it's negative, it's usually from our shadow side. So it's something we don't like about ourselves. Um, if it's very positive, then often it's an unrecognized quality that we hold ourselves, but don't see it in ourselves. Um, so I think within that space, uh, we are actually working with some kind of unconscious process, whether we know it or not as a coach. Um, and as you know, and as I think many of your listeners will know, there are lots of tools and techniques promoted through coaching yeah. are kind of in, in that space to help somebody mm -hmm. recognise who they are. Uh, and I chose to do the psychosynthesis training because it is um, it sits in the transpersonal kind of modality. It's, a, it's said to be a psycho-spiritual method, and it came out of transpersonal therapy and very much influenced by the work of Carl Jung. But so within psychosynthesis, they talk about subpersonalities or parts and people use the word parts in everyday language so again I could have somebody sat with me or through zoom um, saying you know I don't feel myself today or this part of me wants or uh, you know a part of me wants to do this and another part of me don't. they are talking about parts of who they are as a person and so psychosynthesis again provides various methods and techniques by which you can help that person come to know their parts you might even give them a name um, to dialogue with them and if there's one particular part who seems to be running the show in an unhelpful way, then who else is there? Um, so there's a bit of an echo here around internal family systems that uses a similar kind of um, definition of um, the parts we hold within us and to make, make ourselves more aware and conscious of the... Um, that those that help and those that hinder. So I have a part called, you know, my my perfectionist part. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, little little Miss Misery, the one who stops me doing everything because she's the risk manager. She pops up going, you know, oh, not sure about that. That's a bit too scary. That's a big risk. What might happen? And so the parts are trying to keep us safe. Mm -hmm. But it, they may have served their purpose. They've originated many, many years ago and they've outlived their purpose because they tend to only know one way of behaving. And uh, yeah. we need to kind of um, 
help them accept that uh, they can play their role in a different way. You can't ever get rid of them, they're there, but it's to look at others. Yeah, yeah. It is even a little bit of synchronicity, actually. I, I have currently a, a cohort uh, that we are starting to to teach in the module three of our program, and that's exactly what we are talking about. We are using the internal family system as a reference to parts, yes. and then uh, uh, it's actually the the inquiry is really how do we support clients in 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 strengthening their compassion itself. So actually using the concept of mindful self-compassion um, and all that internal wording that we begin to tweak so that it has maybe softness of the tone and, and maybe soothing touch and so on. But it's just supporting that compassion itself to become the, the primary adult self, let's say, that, that can um, support other parts in in all these fears and insecurities that they they have so much and and ultimately really deep concern about our well-being <laughs> unfortunately yes. often really preventing us to to move uh, yeah. beyond what is known and and as you mentioned taking risks right yeah yeah the mindful self-compassion was a big big impact on me um, because I've I have you know, I have many memories that go back decades. I'm 62 now, um, so uh, you know, really decades of people saying, "Oh, Lynn, you're a perfectionist," mm. and I couldn't recognise it. I couldn't see that aspect of myself. Um, because I held a definition of perfectionism as being quite nitpicky about literally crossing the T's and dotting the I's, um, which I don't do. You know, I can let that go. Mm. And so it was you know, a long time coming for me to appreciate a much um, broader definition of perfectionism and it first arrived when I got involved with the strengths coaching and uh, one of the um, strengths defined in Gallup's model is called Maximizer. Mm. And there are 34 strengths and you tend to look at your top 10. Maximizer is my number four. So it's a big player. Uh, and when it's working well, it is the... Um, not just the desire, it is the need to take something and make it better. And so that old expression about going from good to great. And I really see that in myself. And when working with strengths, they also look at the, the weakness, you know, the shadow side of the strength when something is overplayed. Um, and they call it perfectionism. You know, there is a danger within maximizer of that drive to take something from good to great is to perfect it. Um, I thought, mm, I'm a bit guilty of that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I see it in myself around being wildly ambitious for just how much I can achieve with a team. Um, so it's very achievement driven. 
And I think that really contributed to my own kind of falling apart and unraveling 10 years ago of I was trying to do too much on my own <laughs> and to be great, to be my best self at everything. Um, very, very independent, very self-reliant mm. um, and an inner voice that, if I wrote it down, would be staggering to read in the level of um, abuse and cruelty, you know, the, the voice in my head. So as you mentioned, you know, I, I did the MBCT course. Um, I think that was around 2016, something like that. Uh, and it didn't really grab me. And then I did the Mindful Self-Compassion course, the eight-week course, and I've done it twice um, because there was something in that that helped me to recognise my own inner voice and how cruel it was and how unkind and to accept that there is this part of me that has a perfectionist um, tendency and to let go of it, that good enough was good enough. And to kind of work on this belief system that I've had since childhood of not being good enough. And to counter that with loving kindness and the compassionate voice and the different tools available through mindful self-compassion. That was an absolute game changer for me. Uh, and I also did some training with a lady called Liz Hall. Mm -hmm. um, that um, She teaches occasionally in the UK for um, mindfulness-based coaching. Uh, so I, I did right. some work with her as well. Yeah. Uh, and again, it, to me, it's part of this bridge between therapy and coaching. I call it the fuzzy middle. There is this space in between the two that feels a bit more tender and a bit more human. I don't want to be, given what I've just said, I do not want to be a purely performance-based coach mm. that's driving toward a goal all the time. Because we, I think we need to recognise our own humanity. Yeah. yeah. Who we are. Yeah. Absolutely. It's something is really just softened as, as I heard your 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 story and how you met your uh, uh, we can call it in many ways names, right? Like the I, I know in positive intelligence it's called Stickler. I don't know if you heard of positive intelligence, it's another system uh, as well on identifying these shadow sides and calling saboteurs. And um, and then how also as it's like fine uh, or fuzzy middle between coaching and therapy. Also, we we have this like shadow side and light side, right? Like in a certain way, there there's so much determination of these uh, habitual thinking and and these pattern behavior. I mean, we don't need to think about it, and it just happens on its own, right? So there's a lot of energy. And often we just want to go and, and just cut it off. And we say, it's like, oh, it's not serving me, right? But if we find that compassionate presence and actually hear its intentions and, 
and really come to the space of like, wow, you're actually really trying to serve me. And majority of all of that even thinking and, and all the behavior, even if it's harming, it's somehow trying to provide something for us. And so that's where I also believe that in that gray zone between coaching and therapy, majority of people can actually find themselves because often in therapy, we kind of like go and seek for therapy when we have that sense, I'm broken. And I yes. need some mending, right? And in coaching is maybe a little bit more of like, I believe I can get more, but I don't know how, right? Yes. And and I think that intention from the client actually can also identify what, what do they really need. If they believe they're broken, then perhaps therapy is really more, more appropriate there. But and then there are all these like so many people in the middle where we are just like yourself and myself thinking, I'm conscious, look how much practice I have done in all of these things, right? Like and then yeah. it's like, of course I can keep going on my own. I don't need anybody, right? And and that's where I think that coaching comes actually perfectly to to bring these insights on, on where we are stuck. So I'm also curious about something. How much in this transformation of your um, shadow side of, of the perfectionist and, and also the, let's call it light side of the maximizer, was, uh, was um, actually a way for you to discover your art? Because there is something about perfection in, in your art. I mean, it's all about yeah. perfection. Right? Oh, yeah, there it is. <laughs> That's not lost on me. So, my, um... <laughs> so yeah, it's just uh, with uh, regards to your listeners who've probably not seen my art, I, I work with sacred geometry. Um, so, I am creating very complex patterns through the use of a compass and a ruler or straight edge, which is used purely to draw straight lines. So all the measurements are taken by the compass. I'm not measuring with a ruler or a protractor. Um, and these patterns, which come you know, from centuries ago or millennia, very, very ancient, are imbued with deep symbolical meaning um, from around the world and the underlying meaning is remarkably consistent um, from whatever faith or part of the world they originated. So for example a square is the earth and a circle represents heaven. So mm -hmm. a mandala is to represent heaven on earth. They're often about balance and harmony. And there are a lot of ratios and proportions in it that reflect the cosmos, the planets and the position of stars and so on. So I love all of that and the philosophical meaning of these patterns. So you can look at a pattern at one level and go, oh, that's pretty. I like that. Or, oh, no, I don't like that one. But it's the meaning behind it that really, really fascinates me. So in order to create them, and to get all the lines joining up requires a great deal of precision. And my 
in a perfectionist does a happy dance every time <laughs> its various points join up. <laughs> and there are a whole community of people that I've come to know who practice this art. And we can sit in a class, you know, in person or on Zoom or something, and you can just hear everyone's sigh of relief that the pattern works. And it's this... You can say, oh, it's off. You know, if the pattern is a millimetre incorrect, that creates so much disharmony inside because the perfectionist wants it all to join up. Um, so I, I have recognised the link with perfectionism and it, you know, it does require precision. And um, I've also realised the kind of thread with my own ancestry because my father was a watchmaker and so we come back to precision that you know his ability to take a watch apart and put it back together again and all these teeny tiny moving parts you know that's my memory of him as being hunched over his workbench with an eyeglass and tweezers in his hand to um, rebuild a watch and I think you know there's another pattern so perhaps this enjoyment of pattern and precision is kind of in my blood through him right right it's interesting yeah yeah Yeah. so so some some memories from the childhood and and just uh, I almost have that very descriptive language as as you share uh, like almost can see your father and of course there's I was just today listening to some uh, uh, talks about store consciousness and how we are able to create some images even if we have never seen them but maybe I saw it in some book or or somewhere or in some movie and and now there is that image that is just coming together and, and really making it alive um, yes. And I'm I'm also hearing that there is this um, uh, precision and and uh, even patience to coming to the point of completion because until the the completion of the whole art or mandala creation of the mandala you actually don't know if it's you know, like if it's going to work really well. <laughs> yeah there is that. Um... There is a sense, uh, as I've, I've come to learn this um, craft, that you can get to various parts of um, constructing the pattern where you know it's actually wrong because the accuracy mm. is keeping. Uh, and there are lots of points of error that can happen at the very beginning of the drawing. Mm. So if your pattern is half a millimetre off in those early stages, it will end up being a centimetre out later. Uh, So there are opportunities to kind of course correct. I think this is such a metaphor about life for me. Uh, That uh, if we are aware and paying attention you know, and the, the, there is the mindful activity to life, isn't there, of being aware. Um, and it's the same with the pattern. 
that we have these moments of choice in life, you know, the thousands upon thousands of choices we make in a single day. And a different yeah. choice could have led us somewhere else, you know, small or large. And the same thing is going on in a pattern. And do we need to course correct or let something be? You know, mm. is, is it about perfection? Um, sometimes that's appropriate. Sometimes for me, I'm learning the art of allowing and this, just let something go. You know, life is okay. I don't mm-hmm. have to be 110% of every moment of every day. Yes, yes. And if my perfectionism leads to creating something harmonious that has inherent beauty, then I'm okay with my perfection in that regard. Yeah. But mm-hmm. where my perfectionism gets combined with another part I call my warrior woman which is about driving and striving and it must be and it has to look like this Um, and it's to notice that's where I'm at and to pause and breathe go make some art (laughs) go walk by the sea get in nature breathe just just like calm calm down so, so anywhere you know, mm-hmm. it's actually you found that the, there's a combination of two parts that actually creates that critical um, mm-hmm. maybe imbalanced sense of let's call it energy inside not to put any other label yeah. or or so right and and so i also hear that you have two Three anchors, uh, breathing, nature, and art. Yes. Right. So, mm, so, so is, is that what your art is primarily has a healing factor? Because I, you already mentioned that it was rather a surprise. You didn't really aim to, to go anywhere with that. It was kind no, of like holding it itself to, to be shared with others. Yeah. Yes, definitely healing. Mm. Um, particularly. Uh, 10 9 years ago um very much healing you know art as therapy um i wasn't looking to be an artist i hadn't done art since leaving school so you know decades previously i always say art found me art claimed me um and hasn't let me go and uh, i'm very thankful for that now, in more recent times, um, I'd say it is a mindfulness practice. Mm-hmm. And yes, yes, that's healing in the sense that it takes me out of the everyday. Um, and other people have said, oh, it must require a lot of patience. And you used the word patience a, a few moments ago. And I've kind of thought about that because to me, I don't feel like I'm having to exercise patience. Mm. Um, to me, I am in a place of flow. And there is something about this practice being channeled through my heart, mm. which is quite an intangible thing to try and explain 
on that I think most of us have had this experience of flow, often by being in nature, but some, something where we're not really aware of time. Uh, and so uh, that's what happens to me with the art, that I enter into a kind of sacred space and I am channeling the work through my heart. And I notice when I'm not, and I particularly notice it when, because um, I sell my work, and I, ne- I never dreamt I'd ever be saying, I have my work in private collections all around the world. And we go, ha, oh. and it's like, but I do. Um, and most of it sells through Instagram. I've got a page on Instagram. And when I post something as um, available to buy, I know if it's going to sell or not, because those that I have channeled through the heart space have some kind of energetic or vibrational quality and somebody will buy it. They don't even know why they're buying it, but it speaks to them. If I have created something from a more rational headspace, it doesn't sell. It's quite interesting. It's just like I've done something uh, from that cognitive place. And mm-hmm. I can feel it, and I think um, other people can feel the difference in the energy. But I felt it while I was making it. Right. And only you know what is inside of you as you make it, right? So, and, and how do you use that information for your other, uh, other parts of life? Is, is, there, is there a way that you can use that awareness of what comes from mind and heart in, let's say, coaching or cooking or, you know? Mm. Yes. Yes. Mm. I mean, definitely cooking. And we've probably all had experiences of having the most wonderful meal and knowing that the person who's made it has cooked it with love. Love is often felt, you know, through um, how somebody's prepared what we eat. Um, In coaching, I think it it comes back to that kind of somatic awareness Mm. of, of our own body and the ability to tune in to the other um somatically um you know, emotion is felt in the body really mm. it's not in the head but uh, right. <laughs> that for me there is this kind of dance that's going on in the coaching space between mm. the head uh, the heart but other parts of the body I, I often feel something in my gut or you know the, the sensation we may have of you know there's anger here, mm. although the person in front of you isn't sounding angry, but you know you kind of tune into these emotions of what may be present, you know, sadness, grief, mm. yeah. and it's often described as intuition, and other people who I've trained with or worked with have described me as being very intuitive Mm. and also highly relational. Mm -hmm. Um, And that may or may not be true. Sometimes I do get a kind of intuitive hit where I have a thought that says, you know, oh, there's anger here. 
or you know, I was I was in a sharing circle last night and from somebody's um speaking I, I just felt I had to wonder about their need to be in nature mm. I was like yes you're right you know, it's what it wasn't what they've been saying but we're back to the unconscious communication mm. and noticing what we are feeling and this ability to inquire into is this mine or is it theirs mm. is it ours you know what's going mm. on in the connection here um, between us and somehow to become sufficiently agile to work out is it mine or is it theirs very very quickly <laughs> or to, or to <laughs> test it out and it's like I'm, you know, I know sometimes I've sat with people. I thought, God, I've got this pain in my head. That why have I got a headache? And to kind of risk the question of like, right. I'm wondering how you're feeling. You know, I've got a bit of a headache coming, and they, go, oh yes, I've got this terrible pain in my head. Oh well, what's that about? Yeah. And you kind of move off with that. Um, and I know certainly in my early days, I'd be a little shy of trusting that information as valid and to make an inquiry from it. You mentioned something very curious, uh, and I think you mentioned it twice. And the first time I thought, like, what was that that you said? And then I wrote it down, actually, while I was looking at you and my, my hand just <laughs> went. Um, so you, you said uh, this capacity to tune in into other. Mm -hmm. And and I have never heard it being described like that. And, uh, so can you can you share a little bit more? So you are also talking about feeling and not knowing is it yours or so. What is the difference between being courageous to share what's happening within you and then just placing it there as um, as kind of like an inquiry uh, to to check how the other one is what they are sensing, and also the, the the difference between that and then that intentionally almost seems like tuning into the other. Mm. Yeah, is it's there a really difference hard. or it's yeah? Really <laughs> hard to explain. Um, really hard to explain. Um, and certainly came through my training as a psychotherapist. Mm -hmm. yeah, you have you have five years of this training mm -hmm. um, through lots and lots of practice with your fellow students and also with clients because uh, in therapy and sometimes in coaching this language is used it's about transference and counter-transference yeah um, and this was explained to me very very simplistically by a supervisor in therapy while I was training and it stayed with me because I found it helpful. So um, transference is how the client feels about us. It's their transference of who, who they're seeing, experiencing us as and counter-transference is how we feel about the client. There's yeah. much more complexity to it than that. But in, particularly in supervision, um, we were constantly invited to 
check for our counter transference? How was our client making us feel about them? Mm. Um, and within that, how much of the material the client was bringing was actually triggering our own stuff. And it was frequently through the supervision of explaining the emotions and thoughts that uh, were mm. going on in all of its inside of us. You know, how, I'm, you know, how is the client making me feel about them? Still ends up as a thought. And how much of it is actually my own shit, basically. And to be able to disentangle that, because often, as they said to us, you will get the client that you need, which they meant that that client was going to stimulate stuff in us that was actually our own. Mm. And in order to be a good therapist, and I think this is true of coaching as well, but coaching pays less attention to this, particularly in the training. Mm. Um, but to be a good practitioner is the ability to then disentangle my own emotional reaction to the client from what is their own material. And that can get really hard. Um, so an example of that um, through therapy would be perhaps to have a client who has a very similar story to mm. your own. So my first ever therapy client had a sister who had died from cervical cancer. Mm. I had ovarian cancer in 2004. Mm. I had this client in 2005. So the story is not the same, but yeah. there's a great similarity around mm. cancer. Her sister died. I was fortunate enough to survive. But she was working with grief, mm. which played into my own experience of confronting my own mortality yeah. so what's mine what is her and my ability to then work with empathy and to separate out my own reaction to my own story mm. so what I was talking about in terms of the tuning in um, is probably about empathy um, and to Pay attention to the feelings that are being brought up in me in response to the other person and to kind of have that dance uh, mm. and to be in that place with the other person. Yet I'm not climbing into it. I'm not drowning in the empathy because I'm still having to work alongside that person you know, as a coach or as a therapist to move them through something. Um, and I like what you said earlier about often people come to therapy because they're feeling broken and people come to coaching because it's like, they're like okay, you know, this person may come to me in coaching now, you know, 15 years on and say, I think I'm still affected by my sister's death, but I know it's holding me back. So how can I let go of that and embrace whatever 
vision she has of her life. And so you kind of work with that. Um, I don't know if that helps the leader. That's absolutely, absolutely. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you you really brought that. Um, this is what often it would be kind of like uh, used. The word empathy would immediately be used. I really, uh, it resonates for me, especially because I'm a little bit more auditory in general. So when you say to tune in into the other, and I suddenly had this, oh, wow, yes, it's like radio frequency, right? Like that, that's what we are really... Um, connecting and and the the difference from not really like trying or striving to do that is like not doing something to the other but just like really adjusting the frequency and perhaps with that empathy and and compassion just coming into what is this person really saying or and what is it that I'm really feeling right now as they're sharing their story right yeah yeah and indeed I I know that there are a lot of uh coaching approaches that are very brainy, very uh, driven, very uh, let's move, let's go to the result, to what are we doing. It's very um, doing-based, but when there's coaching that is being-based, and there's uh, indeed a lot of these elements again that I I think that that come intertwined with, with therapy. It's just maybe the depth of of how much we are exploring certain patterns, maybe again is yeah. is uh, different. Yeah. And I'm also hearing, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was just about to say, a lot of coaching is quite time restricted. Yes, mm. because yeah, you know, there is. I don't know if it's the same um, for you in China, but uh, there is this kind of received wisdom here uh, in in the UK and I think in America that people sign up for six sessions mm. and the, each session you know, can be anything from 60 minutes to two hours, 90 minutes, whatever the coach is offering. And so there's a sense of it being quite solution focused. So you yeah. can have solution focused therapy, which is time bounded in that way. But a lot of psychotherapy becomes open ended. So it's a, there's a much slower process going on and meeting weekly uh, and I I sometimes question the the coaching kind of wisdom of of the striving to get to an end goal within six sessions um, right a lot is possible in a short amount of time but I think again it depends what the person is working with yeah. and in my experience, particularly in organisations, and thanks to um, COVID and the pandemic and um, the decisions that were taken in the last two or three years related to that, is the extraordinary level of anxiety. Yeah. Uh, and you kind of look at senior leaders, and so I'm talking about the executive management team in particular and their direct reports, but to work with chief executives and directors and to have the compassion to realise the level of responsibility that they are holding and the decisions that they are having to make 
from a place of unknown. Yeah. So, uh, um, and if they are uh, yeah, driven by shareholders and the whims of the stock market and all that kind of stuff, uh, then the decisions can very much feel like um, live or die. Yeah. Uh, even before the pandemic, but probably after the kind of financial crash of 2008, I became very aware of the people I was working with in organisations who wouldn't use the word, but for me it felt like deep anxiety mm. and it interferes with the ability to make decisions. So you get lots of procrastination happening at the executive level because they want more data. They want more information to feel better about, am I making the right decision? Okay. And often the data isn't there. And often it's the organisation can't even extract the data because the right. systems won't provide it or they don't okay. capture it. Um, and then the employees in the organisation get very frustrated with what they see to be the lack of leadership, okay. which usually means the lack of decision making. And we see it in governments now. You know, this is playing out across the world. So mm. if people are coming to coaching, um, wanting to get from A to B in six sessions over the course of three to six months. I sometimes worry for them. <laughs> and right. uh, you know, mm -hmm. I think coaching mm -hmm. space because a lot of people think coaching is about performance and going from A to B and striving and driving. And if they're then with a coach that helps them to just slow down mm. and have a space to think and to work with a thinking partner and to right. explore their own responses to something, uh, they have often found that, from my experience, to be extremely helpful. And the coaching space becomes a very special, a kind of special place because there's nowhere else they can get that. Yeah. Because then they're yeah. back on it and in it. And the uh, pace of life takes mm. over. You're touching again on a very, very... Um important topic and, and very dear to my heart as well and, and perhaps uh, if that's okay maybe to to give one one question that I think it's so important and especially for coaches who are new and 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 not quite uh, experienced when working you know like we have so much desire to go out there and serve the clients but when we start working with leaders who are exactly in that deep anxiety and when they are so driven to provide create results and somewhere there they're in that space um, uh, live or die right like so so there is so much there is so much pressure what what, what do we need to pay attention to how to recognize when, when a human is really deeply suffering and that, that there is a, a, like a red flag that we really need to pay attention to. If there is some, you know, I know that this could be a, a one-week program. 
(laughs) there is a piece of advice uh, because sometimes things can happen and and you know like we we there's so much we are hearing about how how people are, are are handling with these kind of pressures right like and and it can have tremendous impact on on um on, on how we as coaches feel as we may hear the, the news also about what, what these leaders are deciding, how they're moving forward with their career and everything. Yes, yeah, yes. It's, um, certainly here in the UK, you know, through, through the pandemic and the lockdowns and now there's a lot of conversation about well-being and organisations um, giving more attention to the well-being of their people. There's not a lot of discussion about the well-being of those leaders. You know, right. the, the conversation about well-being is placed in the boardroom. Of, so what are you as the leaders going to do about our well-being? Um, and I'm not sure those people have the answers either. And so, yeah, yeah. That old saying, you, you cannot pour from an empty cup. Yeah. And that applies to all of us, um, whatever our status may be in, in the world or in the workplace. So in the kind of coaching work that I've done, you kind of test out the willingness of the other person to share a little more about the reality of their experience. Um, Some people are more willing than others. Mm. I think some feel grateful to be given the opportunity to kind of let the mask down and say, Mm. actually, really tough and I'm struggling. Um, so wherever somebody is around that, I have found it helpful actually to um, use some mindfulness. Yeah. And it could be as simple as, uh, you know, the, at the beginning of the session, particularly if somebody is meeting you during their working day and they've come from one meeting, they may have arrived a little bit late and they're watching their clock because I've got another meeting after this one. So we've got this kind of oasis of time and space is to invite them to just spend a minute and do some deep breathing. You know, I, I have said this so many times to somebody saying, so, you know, shall, shall we just, uh, you know, spend a minute and I'll talk you through some breathing, you know, just allow yourself to arrive. Yeah. And to be here. Uh, yeah, some of the um, things I was taught through Liz Hall, uh, who's also a mindfulness teacher, and she teaches uh, mindfulness coaching. Is she had various kind of almost like visualizations. Um, but I think with a visualization, a guided visualization or a guided mindfulness meditation helps somebody to slow down it goes into a different part of their brain, into their right brain. It brings their breathing and their heart rate down. And often there is that moment of creativity that can emerge out of something like that. 
um, or there's a recognition or some kind of realisation. So I found that helpful to use in a session with people. Some people want to deliberately um, try and uh, manage their anxiety. So uh, again, I would often go to mindfulness as a supportive approach for that. And then other more practical well-being things like just checking out their sleep, their nutrition, or they're just going for a walk. Do they have a dog? If you don't have a dog, pretend mm-hmm. you've got one or borrow somebody else's. <laughs> but get yourself out um, into some fresh air. Back to nature, right? Back to nature and, and also opening ourselves out of the these boardrooms, out of the enclosed spaces and and just also letting ourselves breathe and and even if possible just to kind of like be able to see the spaciousness sometimes just change of the environment can help yes and definitely the soothing the soothing effect of the animals um, and plants as well right like the the, uh, all of that yeah so some of it's very simple and yeah, you know, I find it can it can be easy to overlook the simple. Yet it's those simple things that can have the biggest impact. Yeah. Isn't it? Exactly. Like you say, plants, yeah. If you don't have a garden, get some house plants, yeah. Find yeah. something that you can tend to, because in tending to those you are attending to yourself yes yes absolutely and giving them plants and animals also space to give what they are naturally giving right so that we can receive one is to take care of and another one is to receive they're just naturally giving us our in this you know breath right like that's that's how how we are alive and and isn't that uh, amazing and just the sheer delights and joy of you know if if somebody has planted some bulbs you know daffodils or spring flowers it's just that sheer joy of watching the flower open it's like yes yeah. Yes, there's something in about life happening in in a slightly shorter amount of time. We sometimes we tend to go and project all these, like I said, we used to do visions, five year vision, ten year vision, yeah. right? Like, and and it's in this time of uncertainty, it's so difficult to to plan anything beyond the week, even for a day. Sometimes it can be challenging. Um, but when when we plant, we know kind of like what is the season, and we plant these these flowers and see them grow it, it is really really magnificent uh, yeah, it so, real yeah. yes absolutely and doing when i moved here which is about three three and a half years ago um is i gave myself permission to buy fresh flowers mm. and yeah. have fresh flowers in my house and yeah it doesn't cost a huge amount of money either. We were coming into the spring here, so the, the daffodils, bunches of daffodils are appearing in the shops, and they're a pound. They think you can just bring springtime into your house for a pound. 
that is less than the price of a cup of coffee. <laughs> and what is very momentary, these flowers will give their beauty for a whole week. Yes. I just love it. Yes. Like, yes. I congratulate myself that I allowed myself to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there is another another uh, break of the pattern or or realizing how you can bring more color uh, into your yes. life, right? Like, yes, oh, so beautiful. And you know, like uh, nobody can see right now and they will, nobody will see because this will be an audio recording. But it is so interesting that, right, I, I just had a, a light um, and because it's getting darker, it's almost the evening, uh, well, it's night, it's uh, six, almost 6.30 here. And right now I'm surrounded with darkness and you are basically in the kind of like peak daylight. of your day, right? Like, and it's the daylight <laughs> and and it's so beautiful just thinking about the whole play of the shadow and, and the light and, and our talk and and finding the way of embracing both and i i'm i'm really really uh, grateful for for the insights and so so many things you shared actually is is uh, really close to my heart and and uh, as you were saying being tuned into uh, uh, the other right like a lot of things that you mentioned i'm just about to embark on a journey in this week and and uh, it's just just fantastic so yeah really really grateful and i think a lot of that you shared is going to be helpful for um, the students that are starting this module three that we are having on on thursday so um, uh, if with your permission can i share your website where people can see your your um, Oh, yes. Uh, art. Yes. Yes. So it's yes. Uh, yeah, it's sacredintuitiveart.com. Uh, yes. and uh, or you can even uh search uh Lynn Hanford Day or an art uh, and you will you will see amazing art that is on the website and and yes. a little bit more philosophy. Also Instagram, what is the Instagram? It's the same name on Instagram, so sacred intuitive arts. Um, right. you'll find my posts there so but thank you Dalita I, I really enjoyed the conversation yes and, uh, so I hope it all goes well on Thursday I'm, I'm yes. teaching this week as well because I was asked to join the facilitation team for the psychosynthesis coaching and right. the the online course starts uh, this Friday so, all right there exciting. you go yeah <laughs> exactly so you will be exploring a little bit of shadow and and all of that right and and my course yeah. is called heart presence facilitating change with compassion so oh. that's yeah we'll be diving into family uh, system and compassion itself and parts and how to use that in coaching so a lot of them that we shared in, in the yeah. in today's uh, talk so i would love to continue to to uh, and and remain connected of course um, I'll, I'll continue to follow your your art and who knows maybe also we get to have a, a walk somewhere in the forest yeah. and, and enjoy the nature yeah. and walk those dogs or cats <laughs> who knows <laughs> yeah, that would be wonderful. 
Thank you. Bye. Thank you too as well.